I'm going to try and make it a shorter sermon. It's hard for us pastors because we like to talk a lot, but I'm going to try. So the clock is the clock is running, but I'm not going to rush. We have so loved our times of worship the last few months. If you've been with us the last few months, you'll have noticed it's just like we're getting deeper into God's presence. There's more profit to make happen, but it just seems like it's been an amazing journey that we're all on. Not something that we forced or try to make happen, but it just seems like our times with God are more intimate, and we're loving it. And so we're wanting to make space this morning for more of that. And so I'm going to be preaching on worship. It's part of the next part of John chapter 4 that we are on, so that we can make space for a longer, uninterrupted time of worship after I preach. Does that make sense? You all with me? Cool. Feels weird to only sing one song and then... Well, in this church, maybe it feels weird. But go with me to John chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 15. And we're going to carry on in this conversation that Jesus is having with this woman from Samaria. Samaria, sorry. And Jesus had been talking to her. They're sitting at the well. It's noon. It's a hot day. Jesus is sitting down. He wants something to drink. They start talking about water and the well. And Jesus turns the conversation to something spiritual. He talks about living waters. And he says, just before we get to this part and what Laney preached on last weekend, he says, anyone who drinks the water from this well will thirst again. But if you drink the water I give you, this living water, you will never thirst again. So we kind of, we stopped mid-conversation last Sunday, but we're going to carry on. Like when you press pause, but now you watch again a week later. The woman carries on. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's still thinking about physical water. Jesus is talking about eternal life, spiritual living water. She's kind of not getting it. He told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Thanks for telling the truth. It's kind of what he's saying. Jesus has this supernatural knowledge, this word of knowledge, if you like, about this woman's past. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship, where we must worship, is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshippers will worship the Father <clears throat> in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, Ah, the one speaking to you, I am he. It's the most direct revelation that he's the Messiah. And just a little, a little aside comment, which deserves a whole sermon by itself, is that God loves to reveal himself. 
We find Jesus over and over giving clues, giving hints, and then giving very obvious one-liners. I'm the Messiah. God delights, God desires that we would know him. He loves to show off in the sense of showing himself off that we would know him. It's, it's an amazing, amazing fact. Notice how Jesus points out this lady's sin. He had the super knowledge, supernatural kind of wisdom or insight, and he points out her sin, her brokenness, her failures. Five failed marriages. That's tough. She's been through a lot. And now she's living with a guy who's not her husband. But notice that Jesus doesn't shame her, doesn't judge her. And friends, you and I need to know that God doesn't shame us. He knows about our sin. He sometimes points it out. And I'll tell you why he does that in a moment. But he doesn't judge us. The reason that he doesn't judge us is because he's judged the sin already on the cross with Jesus. Why does he point it out then? If he's not wanting to shame us or judge us, I think, in the case of this woman and for all of us, that if we, not, if we don't understand our sin, our brokenness, our failures, we'll never really know that we need a Savior. Do you get that? If you don't know you're hungry, how do you know you need food? Well, there's this feeling that tells you, oh, or you feel weak, or you smell something like, oh, I smell someone cooking burrowos. Isn't that bad? You go to the shops and someone's cooking burrowos on the side. Yo. But, but, but you know you need something because there's a desire. And for us, we need to realize our brokenness. Before we, need, before we know, oh my word, I need a Savior. I need living water. So Jesus was just pointing out to her, not that she didn't know, but, but there's a great need for a Savior. And she doesn't deny her sin. Doesn't try and explain, oh, well, you know, I had such a difficult upbringing and in the, the suburb I lived in, they always did this. And she didn't excuse her sin. She didn't deny it. She didn't cover up. She didn't try and explain it away. But she does kind of like change topic. She starts speaking about worship. <laughs> we don't know why. Maybe she, at some point in her life, she really had a heart to worship and serve God. And so she has this complaint, well, you know, we, we worship on this mountain, but the Jews don't recognize our place of worship. And Jesus has an answer even for what seems like a legitimate complaint. He says, there's a time coming where you'll, you won't worship here or in Jerusalem. In fact, the time has come where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So what do you think about worship? Sometimes we go to church, but we don't worship. Sometimes we sing songs, but we're not actually worshiping. Sometimes we hear a sermon, and we're not worshiping. Sometimes we come to church, and we, we're serving in some ministry team, but we're not actually worshiping. Now, all of those things are good, and they're elements of worship, facets of worship, if you like, but in and of themselves, they don't constitute worship. So it's possible to come to church and do all those things and actually fail in trying to worship God. What is worship? 
What did Jesus teach about worship? We're going to look just at what he taught here. The first thing we see is that place is no longer important or as important when it comes to worship. They had the temple in Jerusalem. In the Old Covenant, God's presence was where? It was in the tabernacle, when in the wilderness, and then in the temple. It was confined to a place. You had to go up to Jerusalem if you wanted to worship in this formal way. They had um, this physical place. In the New Covenant, the Bible says that God's Spirit lives in us. Paul says that we are a temple. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're not confined, you and I, we're not confined or limited to where we must worship. This place, with its uh, lack of carpets and cold, <laughs> I see Vasa standing at the back because the heat is on at the back. That's not a more holy place because it's warm. There's, that's the fire of gas, not the fire of God. There's no holy place when it comes to worship anymore. You can worship in your car. You can worship in your lounge. You can worship out in nature with creation. There's no, I think it's special when lots of God's people gather and all of our faith gets joined together. That's why we love to come here on a Sunday. That is different, but the place itself is not special. That's what Jesus is saying. Second thing he says is that we must worship in spirit. We worship in spirit. Why? Because God is spirit. And we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Well, what does that mean? I think it means that worship is a mostly spiritual activity. Yes, we have to use our physical vocal cords. We've got to see the words if we don't know them. We've got to raise our hands. We can dance, etc. There's some physicality to worship, but it's primarily a spiritual activity. Worship in the Old Covenant used to involve loads and loads of sacrifices, Loads of rituals and offerings. And there's the risk even in our modern day of us making worship an external thing. About the songs we sing or about the style we have or etc, etc. And it's a human condition. We tend to make our faith and our worship more and more of an outward thing with all kinds of ceremonies and rituals and rules, etc. And then we end up attaching too much importance to our particular way of doing things. So Jesus says you worship in spirit. And Jesus announces this change is coming. No more is it going to be an external thing. It's going to be different. It's a spiritual activity. In other words, it comes from our heart. It comes from within us, not externally. And that, the implication of that is that it doesn't, worship doesn't depend on what we have. Hear that. Worship doesn't depend on what we have. If I go to the gym, and I haven't been to the gym for, since before COVID, you can probably tell, hey. <laughs> but if I had to go to the gym, the, 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 the size of the weights that I would be lifting would depend on what? On what I have, what I don't have. <laughs> or how often I've gone to gym, how hard I've trained, Maybe I've got a, a, a gym coach who, who's really pushing me or I'm taking some supplements. or Like it'll depend on a whole lot of things, including what I have, my muscles. But worship, Jesus is saying, when it's inside, when it's from the inside, it doesn't depend on what you have. 
In other words, every single person, every single person can worship God acceptably. A five-year-old kid, a 95-year-old person who can't walk anymore. We don't need fancy sacrifices like the Old Testament. Just a heart and a desire for God. It's far more meaningful to have three or four people who's uh, they gathered for fellowship and prayer in a tiny room in a shack in Alex, but their hearts are seeking God than to have 10,000 people with cold hearts in the Grand Cathedral. Far more meaningful. Why? Because worship is of the Spirit. It's from within us. It's in our hearts. The third thing Jesus says, that we should worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? I think it can mean a few things. One, I think it has to do with our motives. Sometimes we come to God, if we're honest, with false motives. We're coming to God for what we can get from God rather than from getting of, more of God. In other words, it's got to be real and genuine from our side when we come and we worship. I think it also means that we have to worship with a right understanding of God. In other words, we, we have to worship without a blurred or a distorted view of who God is. Well, why do I say that? Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. In other words, they didn't really know, although they were trying to worship, they didn't really know this God that they were trying to worship. What I've noticed in my own life, and I think in many of our lives, is that we tend to fashion God into our image. We tend to cut God down to our size. We think God is a little bit stronger, a little bit more powerful. He knows a bit more. Like he can see the future a bit better than we can. So he's, he's like, he's superhuman. We wouldn't say that to anybody, right? We wouldn't. But in our thinking and how we relate to God, he's a bit bigger than us, but he's not God. One of the, to me, the most amazing rebukes that God gives the Israelites is found in Psalm 50. And he says this, you thought that I was altogether like you. Wow, what an accusation. We tend to fashion God into our image. We suppose that God thinks like us, that he reasons like us, that he acts like us. So when we go to God, oh, God could never forgive me because I've done this thing. Well, that's because you would never forgive someone if they did that thing against you. So we project ourselves onto God. Well, you know, God, I, I deserve a good break. It's, it's been a tough few years, and I've been really good. And I, I deserve some goodness. I've worked hard, Lord. Friends, that's not grace. That's human effort. So we, we think that God thinks like us. And he says, worship in truth. You have to worship God. We think God would be okay if we cut corners, because we think it's okay if we cut corners. Or we judge, or we have compromise or we have hypocrisy or we could name a hundred things, I think. We must worship the God of the Bible, not some image or some idol that we've invented or modified. 
because our society is good at modifying God just so he fits into the boxes we like. He's awesome. He's majestic. He's holy. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's glorious. He's a gracious father. And if we worship anything else but the God of the Bible, we're on a slippery slope to idol worship, idolatry. So we have to get our view of of God from the Bible and worship the God of the Bible. This Samaritan lady grew up in her culture and her society, and she learned religion from her family, from her culture. She had an inherited religion. Okay? She had to let go of that if she was wanting to get this living water that Jesus was offering. Okay? She had to let go of that. We will never get to know God unless we give up, let go the religious systems that we were brought up in. Many of us were. I'm a first-generation Christian, so I've got different issues. <laughs> we all have issues. But for many of us, we've grown up in the church, possibly, in a religious setting. We have to let go of those things if we're going to really know God. The last thing that Jesus says here, well, he says many things, but about worship. He says, God is seeking worshipers. How's that? God is seeking. He's looking for. He's searching. He's hunting down those who will worship him. Why? Does God need worshipers? You're all shaking your heads because you know what the right answer is. <laughs> I, I sometimes laugh inside because we sing songs, Lord, we exalt your name. We lift you up on high. Like, like he's fallen off his throne. <laughs> No, he doesn't need our worship to prop him up. He's not insecure. He needs nothing. He is self-sufficient. He lacks nothing. He is the source of everything. He does not need worshipers. But for some reason, he seeks worshipers. Why? I think when we worship, when we surrendered, we're able to see God a bit better for who he is. And we see ourselves as we should, humble, not much better than the dust. Although we made in his image, he's God, we're, we're the creatures. And he's able to share himself with us. He's not going to share himself and reveal himself to those who are arrogant and proud. But somehow when we're in a place of worship, our hearts are able to receive and hear a whole lot better. Some quick points on why it's good to worship for us. Not that God needs it. He seeks it. But why is it good for us to worship? Number one, worship invites the presence of God. Worship invites the presence of God. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Number two, worship brings victory. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Number three, worship satisfies the soul. Go and read Psalm 63. Wow. Satisfies the soul. Number four, worship brings liberty, Acts chapter 16. Number five, worship brings joy, Psalm 16. Number six, worship strengthens our faith. You feeling like you're weak in your faith? One remedy. There are many. One remedy. Come and worship God. Worship involves a surrender of our lives. It's putting our focus on Him. It's not our personal preferences or priorities. It's celebrating 
who God is, I preached a whole sermon on this a few years ago, worship is celebrating who God is, what He's done, and what He still will do. That's what worship's about. I want to read a quote from, I get the guy's name. <laughs> Please put up the slide. John Burkhart, there you go. John Burkhart, he says, The heart of worship, the essence of worship, is the celebration of God. True celebration of God is quite festive. What does that mean? It was like a party. As it takes delight in what God is about. It's not a duty, but a privilege. It's not a burden, but a delight. Worship gladly celebrates the God whose character is caring and sharing. The God who's indecorously gracious. Can I ask the band to come up and I ask all of us to stand? I want to read part of one of the Psalms. We're going to now make space for worship, like I said earlier this morning. Maybe we can also dim the lights at the back. Thanks, Albert. So we're going to worship now. I did see a few people coming in late. We've preached up front, a shorter preach. We've preached on worship that we can, without hindrance and needing to get through a structure and a liturgy, just worship God and spend time focusing on Him. And there might be some prophetic words and God might want to minister and do stuff and we will try not to interrupt the worship too much. But I'm sure there will be things God wants to do. But I want to encourage us as we worship, focus on God. Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. And so enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. For the Lord is good and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Father, we want to abandon ourselves to worship You. We know that there's nothing 